0: This is Creative Mornings, a new podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp has over 8 million users that collectively send over 17 billion emails a month. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. Welcome to the first installment of the Creative Mornings podcast. This is episode one. This is very exciting for us. So thank you for listening. My name is Matt and I'll be the host of the series. You'll hear my voice usually at the beginning or at the end, sometimes in the middle, wherever there's some business to take care of, housekeeping, occasional one-liners and anecdotes. If you're unfamiliar with us, Creative Mornings is a breakfast lecture series for the creative community. And my favorite line from the about page on the website the concept was simple, breakfast and a short talk one Friday morning a month, every event free of charge and open to anyone. This all began in 2008 with Tina Roth Eisenberg. For all you design folks out there, yes, the same Tina behind Swiss Miss.
1: So I had this vision of sort of curating my own little daily creative community that is equally driven and ambitious in doing great work in the creative space, right? Designers and developers and so, and such. But I realized that there's such a big community in New York City that I don't get to see on a regular basis. And then I looked around, I was like, wait a second, I have a space where I can invite people in now. So I very just casually started opening up my doors on a Friday morning and invited people in my creative community for a cup of coffee. And then I realized, wait, that's not enough because it feels awkward just to be networking. So I figured we need to have a layer of interestingness on top of this that doesn't make you feel like people come in and network. And that's where the idea for a mini talk came in.
0: This first Creative Mornings event took place in October of 2008. It was modest. About 70 people showed up, small, manageable. But within two years, the idea had grown.
1: I started getting inquiries from other cities uh, friends of mine that really that wanted to take the concept of Creative Mornings to their city, and what initially was it just a a group of four cities, and I never thought it would grow beyond that. But then, it happened.
0: Creative Mornings is now in over 120 cities worldwide.
1: Creative Mornings I started as a labor of love to meet my local creative community, and by trusting these hosts around the world to bring it into their cities, it has. Literally turn into a global labor of love. And if I've learned one thing with this, with this experiment of having a volunteer network around the world uh, is that if you trust people, they will overdeliver, and it creates magic. Trusting people just creates magic.
0: I mentioned that Creative Mornings has grown to over 120 cities worldwide. What I didn't mention is that these are volunteer hosts and their team members organizing these chapters. The idea is to celebrate a city's creative talent while also promoting an open space to connect with like-minded individuals. From design legends to hometown heroes, the speakers are selected by each chapter based on a global theme. This archive has continued to grow over the past seven years and we're really looking forward to sharing it with you. We also wanna focus on you. You're the creative community and you're the reason why we're here. So we're on Twitter, at Creative Morning, that's singular, Creative Morning. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you'd like to hear on the show. Let us know what you had for breakfast. It doesn't really matter. We just want to get the conversation started. Just use hashtag PodcastCM. Like I said earlier, each speaker is selected by the local chapter based on a global theme. And for this week's episode, we're revisiting the theme of revolution. In New York City, The event took place at the Brooklyn Museum with speaker Casey Gerald. Casey is the co-founder and CEO of MBAs Across America, a national movement of MBAs and entrepreneurs working together to revitalize America. I spoke with Creative Mornings Director of Community Sally Rumble, who found Casey the usual way on the cover of a magazine.
2: Let's see. I first discovered Casey Gerald on the cover of Fast Company magazine. Um, and I was like probably every other woman or man <laughs> say, who who who, uh, who who likes kind of good-looking people. <laughs>
0: yeah, he's a handsome fella. <laughs> I
2: was like, who's that guy? And I quickly read his story and I was really impressed. I think a, a six months went by and uh, a mutual friend of ours, Ian, got in touch with me because he wanted to talk to me about his startup. I agreed. We met for coffee and... Um, You know, we're in the coffee line, and Casey rocks up. I I thought I recognized him from the the front of the magazine. And Ian said, hey, Sally, do you know Casey? And I I was like, no, actually, I don't. I do, but I don't. (laughs) (laughs) And he introduced me to him, and we were talking about our funny accents, because Casey obviously is from Texas, and I'm from Australia, and he asked me about it straight away, and I thought that was nice.
0: Sally's friend Ian gave her some homework. He told her to go and watch Casey's 2014 Harvard Business School commencement address.
2: So I did, and I was really blown away by that. And, um, you know, a couple of emails later, he was in our studio, and we were talking about Creative Mornings Revolution.
0: It was a spectacular thing to witness, and you find yourself hanging on his every word. I won't lie, the accent helps with that. But here you have it. Casey Gerald on Revolution. Oh, and just a quick disclaimer. There is a little bit of foul language right at the beginning. So, if you're in the car with the kids, you've been warned.
3: I want to uh, take you to a dark corner of a crowded party on a late night an early miserable winter in Cambridge, Massachusetts to a conversation between four friends in our first year at Harvard Business School. A conversation inspired by a little wine and uh, a little Marvin Gaye (laughs) and a little more than a little hostility at uh, the idea of working for Goldman Sachs. There in that corner, a crazy idea was hatched. Uh, What if, uh, instead of marching off in our pinstripe suits to slave away in a cubicle all summer, we piled into an RV and drove into the heart of America to put our overpriced MBAs to use, not just making a buck but making a difference. By helping entrepreneurs bring their dreams to life. Now, as uh, dutiful MBAs, we knew that the risk adjusted present value of making a decision under the influence was very low. <laughs> so we slept on it. And we woke up the next morning even more convinced that this little idea that we had could be a very big deal. And we knew that everybody would agree until they didn't. We marched off to the uh, social enterprise people at Harvard, and they said, this is a cool idea, but it's not really social enterprise. We went to the entrepreneurship experts. They said, interesting concept, uh, but it's not really entrepreneurship. We went finally to the dean himself, found him seated, very solemn, cashmere scarf, (laughs) mahogany paneled room, and he turned to us and he said, fascinating notion, but we just don't have any money. Now, a quick note, the endowment of Harvard Business School, as of this morning, is about $3 billion. But we won't let the truth get in the way of a good story. So there we were, staring at each other through misty eyes, as we watched our baby, our dream, our idea, die before it even had a chance to live. But just before we pulled the plug, we decided to join a long procession of young kids with crazy ideas who were told by some authority that they couldn't do what they wanted. We said, fuck it, we'll do it anyway. So we crowdfunded, about $13,000 from friends and strangers. A lady even sent us 15 pounds of cookies, which were very helpful (laughs) while we were out on the road. Uh, uh, We drove uh, two of our cars when we couldn't afford an RV, and we named one of them R and the other one V, and we tell the press that we had RV as we drove from town to town. We gave up on our dreams of staying in a fancy hotel, instead, deciding to camp in a cow pasture in rural Montana when we got there. And in the process, we learned the first rule in the new playbook for change that I'd like to share with you today. The hierarchy is dead. In this age of chaos and networks and decaying systems, we no longer have to wait for a gatekeeper to greenlight our ideas. In this new playbook, we give ourselves permission. And when we grab hold to that idea, we grab hold as well to the second rule in the new playbook for change, which is that we're all entrepreneurs now. Now, I can fear uh, that the groans are pulsing through the audience at this point. Damn it, not another one of these entrepreneurial evangelists <laughs> coming to give us 12 steps to success. That's not what I want to do. I want to shift what we mean when we say entrepreneur, because the culture would lead us to believe that our entrepreneurial hero is a wiry guy crouched over a computer in his mother's garage building a mobile app? Or harnessing the power of technology to change the world. And changing the world means disrupting old analog industries like Uber, <laughs> creating new industries altogether like SpaceX, or making the lives of the time crunched a little less crunchy like the hot new startup Alfred, which will provide you with your own personal butler who will do your laundry and stock your groceries and clean your apartment, all for the low price of $99 a month. Now some of us here uh, would admit to wanting a butler. Most of us have taken an Uber in the past week. All of us want to go to the moon, I mean it's a great idea. The point is not to bash these founders and their ideas, but it is to say that if only these companies are allowed in the entrepreneurial tent, we're screwed. Because there's a whole unexotic underclass, as my friend wrote in the MIT Entrepreneurship Review, of people and problems that are overlooked and undervalued. And it's time we did something about it. So I want us to be entrepreneurs in the way that Yvonne Chenard, the founder of Patagonia, describes. He says if you want to understand the entrepreneur, study the juvenile delinquent. The delinquent is saying with his behavior, this sucks. I'm going to do my own thing. Exactly.
0: <laughs> in case you missed it, that was the sound of a small child uncomfortably stirring in their parents' arms, and it couldn't have come at a better time. I promise you, that was not scripted.
3: Do you feel that? Your soul telling you that you're an entrepreneur? That all souls are entrepreneurial souls? That same soul that drove the pilgrims to come to these shores, that drove the pioneers to go west That drove Coltrane and Monk to take their pain and their genius and create a new art form that drove you to take your pain and your genius and come to Creative Mornings. And you came, perhaps, to get a tool to spark a revolution. You wanted to know the how and the what like the back of your hand. But what I found on my journey is that it's not the what or the how, but it's the why This is at the heart of creative entrepreneurs. It's the why that sparks the revolution. The third and final rule in the new playbook for change is that purpose is the new bottom line. On this journey to why, we found Dave Schiff, who looks like Voldemort in this slide. (laughs) in Boulder, Colorado. And Dave is a tattoo designer that jumped off the world's largest financial cliff to leave a legendary creative agency and found the MAID movement, an agency dedicated not just to selling more stuff, but to sparking a resurgence in American manufacturing. And Dave gave us a piece of wisdom that shapes the very core of our work. He said, there's no line item on a balance sheet, forgive a damn, but it's the most valuable thing you've got in the business." And he was right. (laughs) On the journey to Y, we found Sarah Calhoun in White Sulphur Springs, Montana, population 900. Now, White Sulphur has gravel roads and one theater that shows one film on one day a week. But that didn't stop Sarah from launching Red Ant's Pants there a brand that makes workwear for women who get real things done, like putting out forest fires and tending the cattle ranches. And I said, Sarah, why do you do this? And she said, when a woman puts on a pair of our pants, she's not just putting on canvas, she's putting on a new identity. It makes her bigger and better and stronger. That's a why worth fighting for. And on this journey to why, we found Kirk Mays in Detroit, Michigan, the week before the city went bankrupt. Kirk drove us through a neighborhood called Brightmoor, which had been named the worst in the city, that the mayor himself said should be wiped off the map. But Kirk had decided to dedicate his life to saving it. And as we drove through this neighborhood, I said, Kirk, why in the world would you do this? And he stopped right there in the middle of the street. And he turned and he said, if you took the blood from my body and projected it as an image on a screen, it would be this city and it would be this work. So I couldn't stop it if I tried and right there, those words put tears in my eyes and they put a fire in my belly because I had also been on my own journey to Y. It uh, is a journey that began when I was 12. And I went home from school one day. My grandmother sat me down. She told me that my mother, who was my best friend and who suffered from mental illness, had disappeared from a rehab facility. And that day turned into a week, and a month, and a year, and almost a decade, when I didn't know whether my mother was alive or dead. And she'd always been my dream defender. I'd sit on the floor of the restroom while she put on her makeup, and I'd tell her about all my grand plans. <clears throat> I'd say, Mama, I want to be a firefighter. She'd say, sure, baby, you can do that. I'd come back a few weeks later and say, Mama, I want to be a chef like Julia Child. And she'd say, yeah, baby, you can do that too. Come back a month or so later and say, Mama, I want to be Martin Luther King. And she'd say, well, baby, that's not a job. but I'm sure you can do it. So when she left, she took my dreams right on with her. But just before I gave up, people from every corner of my community, some of whom I didn't even know, they stepped in, they raised their hands, and they rolled up their sleeves, and they said, how can I help? And that's the only reason I'm standing here. So when I take the blood from my body and I project it as an image on a screen, I see those faces. And they are telling me that it's my turn to raise my hand and roll up my sleeve and say, how can I help? That's what drove me to MBAs across America and that's what brought me to Creative Mornings because I think I have an answer. Let me explain. There's a course at Harvard Business School called Reimagining Capitalism taught by Rebecca Henderson. And the very fact that a course called Reimagining Capitalism is being taught at Harvard Business School means that we live in revolutionary times. And the central question of this course is how can business help solve the biggest challenges that we face? And to answer the question, Professor Henderson breaks all activity into a Venn diagram. One circle represents all the things that make money. One circle represents all the things that do good. When these circles intersect, we have what she calls a bucket one solution. That we can do well and do good. This is Walmart making its supply chain more sustainable, not just because it's good for the planet, but because it saves them money. Great. Let's write cases about this. Let's share these best practices. Everyone should adopt them. The problem with bucket one solutions is that they only get us to about 15% of the way to the world that we want to see. So then we're pushed into bucket two, an innovation solution. Innovation is asking us to take short-term losses for long-term gains. This is Paul Pullman at Unilever or Elon Musk at Tesla. Leaders who say, I'll take the risk and I'll take the lead because I'm betting on the future. Great. Let's highlight their work. Let's hope it inspires other people to follow. But even Bucket 2 only gets us 60% of the way to the world that we want to see, that we have to see now. So then the question becomes, how do we get the rest of the way? Professor Henderson studied the entire history of capitalist civilization and found that the only time we got to a bucket three solution, whether it was ending child labor in Britain or ending slavery in the United States was when there's been a social awakening. Get that. So I say, how exactly, professor, does one spark a social awakening? And she said what perhaps no Harvard professor has ever said. She said, I don't know. (laughs) And that's where you come in. If there is a question burning in your mind, if there's a problem that just won't let you go, if there's a system so broken that it makes you wanna cry, if there's a friend or a stranger whose pain has become your own, if there is a gift that you have that drove you here today in search of a way to give it, then you have found your why. And you hold one spark to the next great awakening. And thank God you do. Because I believe in the very core of my being. That Baltimore will not sleep. And Charleston will not heal. And the seas will not stop rising. And the poor and the weak will not get a fair shot. Until a dying world is shaken from its slumber. And creatives, at your best, you do just that. You wake us up. You lift our eyes and our collective consciousness to a horizon of hope that in far too many places in this country and around the world seems far beyond our view. I believe that horizon is there. It is real. It is ours for the taking. So let's get to work.
0: Casey Gerald received the first standing ovation in Creative Mornings history. The talk was followed by a short question and answer session. And just so you're in the know and you understand what follows here, when attendees arrive at an event, they're encouraged to fill out a name tag that, in addition to their name, includes the answer to a question we pose. The question at this event was, what would you do if you were not afraid? We won't replay the entire Q&A, but there were some choice moments that we'd like you to hear. For the entire episode, you can watch it at creativemornings.com. Just search Casey Gerald.
2: I'm intrigued by your phrase, love ethic, and I was hoping you could speak to the tension between someone who is a really well-resourced, presumably entrepreneur who wants to do good in the world, and the tension balancing that with the needs of the populations you want to serve, (laughs) um, where, you know, maybe there are really good ideas lurking, but they haven't gone to a talk like this or feel like it's within their capacity to have that spark or make that change? How do you balance that?
3: Yeah, it's, um, it really gets us to the central question uh, uh, of this country and definitely of the social change space, which is, how exactly do uh, privileged uh, people help underprivileged people? Right? And uh, it absolutely I think, goes to the question of a love ethic. I'd say a couple things. One, when we showed up in New Orleans a couple years ago, there was an article about us in the Times-Picayune. And the first comment said, if a busload of Harvard MBAs drove up to my business, I'd call the police. Understandably. right? Uh, So often, and I've worked in D.C. in policy, I've worked in, yeah, so often we think we've got the right idea just because we went and got a great education or just because we have the money. I go to so many donor meetings, right, where the person has been very great at financial management of a firm and has made a couple billion dollars and they also think they're great at running my organization, right? It doesn't always follow. Um, We often go in and say, how can we be of service, not how can we solve your problems? How can we learn from you, not how can we teach you? Um, Because I think the Maya Angelou quote is correct, right? Uh, That people don't remember what you say or what you do. They remember how you feel. And more importantly, they only care what you know if they know that you care. And so there's um, there's no way around it. We built our organization based on four values, not based on uh, the credentials of the MBAs that applied. The first was to give a damn. The second was to listen more than you speak, which rules out 95% of the MBA population. (laughs) The third is to act more than you plan. Entrepreneurs don't need 150-page PowerPoint decks. And if you look at much of the uh, work that organizations like mine do, Uh, whether in this country or in the developing world. A white paper ain't gonna end poverty in Sub-Saharan Africa, right? So when we go to Detroit, a place that is 700,000 people, 82% black, 65% below the poverty line, and we see millions of dollars invested in tech incubators that don't have any co-creation with the people of Detroit. I can't believe that that is based on a love ethic. More importantly, I can't believe it's going to work. So, I mean, you, you're designers, you know co-creation better than anybody else. I think that is, at the very least, uh, practically the answer. I think spiritually the answer has to have some love in it. Thanks.
2: Yeah. Is it possible to have a social awakening without a leader? And I ask that because I think there's a lot of struggle in the struggle. And it can come from ego. I've experienced that firsthand, and I just want to know your thoughts on whether it's possible to have social awakening without a leader.
3: Mm. I think it's impossible to get anything done without leadership. question is, what is that? And how do we tell good leadership from bad leadership? The first thing I'd suggest is that everybody should read Robert Greenleaf's the servant as leader and use that as a rubric for anybody who comes and tells you that they are going to lead you or lead something. And if they don't match up with that, don't hire. The other is, I'll give it by way of anecdote. The morning of a speech I gave at Harvard Business School for last year's commencement, uh, that basically in many respects made my career over the past year, um, was a complete disaster. I woke up. It was the coldest day in May in the history of Boston. It was raining. Uh, I had had maybe two or three hours of sleep the night before. I was in a terrible mood. My last run through had been a complete disaster. And I'm starting to freak out. I said, this is just not, this is the end of my career. This is going to be it. I'm going to fail. And about, I locked myself in a conference room to try to compose myself. and. About 8.30, somebody called me and said Maya Angelou had died. And I didn't know her personally, um, but it struck me as a terrible omen. On the one hand, Maya knew this was going to be so bad, she didn't even want to be around to see it. (laughs) Um, uh, On the other hand, she was gone, and I felt this burden of not letting her down. So at this point, I'm losing my with some, you know, having these crying spells. I'm just falling apart. So about 9 o'clock, I called my grandmother down in Texas. And she's 82. And uh, I said, Granny, I really don't have a good feeling about this today. Would you pray for me real quick? Now, my uh, my grandmother's a bit of a prayer fascist. I mean, if I, you know, drop this mic, she would, like, pray for, you know, two or three days about it. Uh, so I knew she would pray. but And I heard... Th- I had heard her pray thousands of times So I thought I knew what she was going to say But she said this prayer that totally changed my life And this is a long way of answering your question She said God will you help Casey remove self So that whatever it is you have to say to people They can receive it Because there are a lot of cultures But there is only one mankind And all of them can hear you If he gets out of the way it was a bit like stepping into the Matrix, you know. I, I had never, I had never understood what it meant to be a vessel. I had done a lot of things that were, you know, social impact focused, change the world focused, and I hadn't realized until that moment how ego driven they had been, how in the way I had been. And so, really, it was like being born again in a lot of ways. So I don't. Throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that because our leaders have ego problems, then we do not need leaders. Uh, Can we love them thickly enough that they can come out of uh, the ego driven work that we all have done in many ways? That again, the ego is just a manifestation of fear, right? So, what would you do if you weren't afraid? I'd get the hell out of the way, right? So, that's the That's one
1: thing. We unfortunately only have time for one more question.
3: Mm. And I saw you shedding a few tears, so you get the last question because you made me very happy.
2: Well, and you made you fired me up, Casey. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And you have moved me and inspired me. And I, I, on behalf of the audience, I mean, thank you so much for coming here. Thank you. Inspiring us. And um, I put on my name tag. If I'm not afraid, I would live off the grid, homeschool my autistic son, go back to Japan, um, make art, make music. But all of these things are hindered by this fear of, well, I don't have any money. Oh. How do we overcome that? I mean, I think I think we all have this problem. <laughs> how do we how, how do we overcome it? That's the question. Thank you. Oof.
3: I don't know. <laughs> I just want to be very honest with you. It is hard. It is hard. My dear friends here know, uh, you know, waking up with your bank account in the red is not fun. Uh, and you get very little satisfaction of changing the world when you came by lunch. <laughs> okay. Um, I'd like to think that over the long course of our lives uh, we learn something from our suffering that being broke might actually be central to our work in one way but that not being broke and not being in Japan and not making art 24 hours a day right, and not homeschooling 24 hours a day for the entirety of our child's lives. Doesn't mean that we can't infuse as much time and space as we can with that dream that we have. T.S. Eliot worked at a bank and wrote some of the greatest poetry of the 20th century. I think it was Henry Wallace sold insurance, Wallace Stevens, sorry, sold insurance Brother on the Grace, right? So uh, I have had some miserable jobs, and I have made money and have been absolutely miserable. So I have a, a and I have been poor for 28 years, uh, so I have a higher, I think, tolerance for being broke. That is not necessarily good. And my, <laughs> and my dear friends, again, say, enough. Enough of this. Stop it. Right? So I don't know because it's not a clear answer. And some of us will have to work jobs that we hate and try to squeeze in as much love and passion and dream and work to move this world forward in our off time, in our lunch break, in the evenings, in the mornings. Right? Uh, some of us will be crazy enough to jump off the cliff and say, you know, I'll wait tables or I'll you know, do this or that to make ends meet. Uh, there are, in our, in our work, we come across some entrepreneurs, uh, some groups of entrepreneurs who are exploring post-currency uh, ways of living. So it's possible in the 21st century that we will reimagine capitalism to such a degree that you won't have this question of, how do I make money? Because we will have taken money out of the question. But then I can't buy Frederick's. Blazer, so I, so I don't know, but I'm happy to co-conspire with you to hopefully find an answer that works. Thank you all so much. This was great.
0: Casey just spoke on the theme of revolution. If you dug this theme, there's a lot more at CreativeMornings.com/talks. So there's a little glimpse into what Creative Mornings does. Keep in mind that aside from the online, and now podcast, community, this is a community of human beings, face-to-face, where talks like this happen once a month, all over the world. If this is new to you, you can go to creativemornings.com to find out if we're in your city. Come on out to one of the events, let us buy you breakfast, and maybe you'll meet someone that changes your life. Or at the very least, you'll learn something about someone else that can teach you a little something about you. Is that too heavy? As with any of our favorite podcasts, it's time for a little bit of business. And today's episode is made possible by MailChimp. Here's what's funny. I went to newsletters.creativemornings.com, which is a dedicated site that Creative Mornings put together featuring some interesting newsletters. I was looking for someone who uses MailChimp so we could discuss MailChimp. The first that jumped out at me was Austin Cleon's weekly newsletter, Little did I know, Austin was actually the very first Austin, Texas creative morning speaker. So we're dealing with an alumnus here. Anyway, Austin is an artist and writer who sends a newsletter to over 20,000 subscribers that is very simply put, 10 things he finds interesting each week. But the thing I like about the newsletter, it's a, it kind of craves its own content. I think what people will discover when they start using MailChimp is that it's really kind of its own medium. And no matter how many subscribers you have, you're always dealing with the inevitable heartbreak of someone clicking that dreaded unsubscribe button. There's a way to change your dashboard so you never get notified. (laughs) Subscribe. Once I figured that out, it made it much more pleasant. (laughs) If you ever get too depressed, just go to your settings and set that you don't want to see when people unsubscribe, and it makes it a much more positive experience. (laughs) MailChimp has over 8 million users that collectively send over 17 billion emails a month. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. And let me just take a moment to give a quick bit of credit. The first time I ever heard a native advertisement, which is what I just did with MailChimp by weaving it into the content, was on Alex Bloomberg's startup. So if you're listening, thanks, Alex. All right, that bit just a second ago where I try to convince you to come to the event's And you might meet someone that could change your life and blah, blah, blah. Well, we'd like to incorporate that idea into the podcast as well. Much like how at Creative Mornings events, the attendees are asked to answer a question on their name tags, we're going to ask you a question. What does it mean to you to lead a creative life? This is Tori. She's a photographer in Brooklyn, New York. A creative life just sounds like an interesting life. When you are making dinner, you think about like how the food's going to go together and what it's going to look like on the plate and the conversation you are going to have and like connecting everything together. Creativity means connection to me. Sometimes this is how we'd like to end every episode by shining a bit of the spotlight on you. Email us your audio file to podcast at creativemornings.com. That's our podcast. That's what we're doing. Thank you all for your time and for listening and for subscribing and for telling your friends. We're really looking forward to building this thing together. So please give us your feedback. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And don't forget to use hashtag podcastcm when you tweet at us. We've got a really fun season ahead, and this is clearly just the beginning. Next week, we'll go back to 2012 with renowned letterer, web illustrator, and the extremely colorful Jessica Hish.
2: It's just so liberating to be able to make anything that you want to make. It's so liberating. And it's not scary. And people try to make it into this scary, super nerdy thing. HTML is just going around with a label maker and throwing labels on everything.
0: Our thanks to everyone at Creative Mornings for making this all happen. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. That rooster you heard at the beginning comes courtesy of Vancouver Creative Mornings host Mark Bussey. Thank you, Mark. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.